to the Untold Stories of Real Estate Investing, hosted by Wayne Courageous III, a place where active and passive investors come to hear the good, bad, and ugly of real estate investing. Our guests consist of experienced operators and investors who want others to succeed by sharing their stories. If you're looking to syndicate deals or grow your wealth passively in real estate, you've come to the right show. It's now time to sit back, take mental notes, and enjoy our next episode of The Untold Stories of Real Estate Investing. Welcome to Untold Stories of Real Estate Investing. This is your host, Wayne Courageous. I'm excited to connect with Jenny Bowling today. She's been in real estate for 40 years, working mainly as a consultant expert in acquisitions in the governmental arena. As such, she has extensive knowledge and ability to understand and work through land title, land use, zoning, valuation, contracting, litigation, permitting, and environmental issues, as well as closing complex transactions. Some of the highlights that I want to point out here is she's acquired and supervised the acquisition of over 600 properties. She's earned the designation of senior right-of-way associate. Uh, she dealt with the first foreclosure property that she acquired back in 1987, a real estate broker over 30 years, and you know currently holds rentals both in Florida and Texas. She's a limited partner in 544 units in Houston and a general partner of 117 units in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm excited to have this conversation, Jenny. Thank you for being on. Thank you. And thank you for having me. It's an honor. Yeah, one thing I loved uh, about your background when um, you know we were connecting before, but also when I was you know just uh, learning about you prior to our show is just the number of years and the experience you have in our real estate industry. You're uh, you know you truly have uh, you know the background and probably the passion of real estate investing that you know I, that I definitely have. So I'm excited to learn from you, and um, our listeners will uh, learn as well as they follow along. But tell us about your background and sort of you know how uh, you got into real estate and sort of your journey thus far. Well, thank you. Um, it's it's kind of interesting. My parents actually flipped houses when I was growing up. <clears throat> we didn't call it that or think of it that way, but as soon as we moved in, they'd give us a paintbrush and tell all four of us to go start painting whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I um, actually went to college to uh, be in marketing and um, did what I thought was a practice interview with the Florida Department of Transportation. And uh, that was graduating from University of Central Florida. <clears throat> and um, by the end of the hour long interview, I had a job offer to go buy property using other people's money, so to speak, uh, you know, the state of Florida's money. And uh, so I never looked back. It was so interesting to get involved with buying property for the state. And it was so complex dealing with um, appraisals and you have an appraisal and the property owner has an appraisal and the attorney and all their experts. And you're trying to put it all together and negotiate settlements and, I thought that was just uh, a blast to have so many experts right there at your fingertips. Mm -hmm. Was the appraisal when you were working through that, um, is it similar, has much changed over the years and how they look at income uh, versus like comparison, you know, equity type properties? Like how do they, I mean, how, if anything has changed over the years when they value from an appraisal standpoint? It has. It's changed some, but not tremendously. And it much depends on where you are and what your experience is. The only reason I think I enjoyed doing it for the state of Florida was because 
they aggressively wanted to negotiate. They weren't acting like you can't can't counter offer you you must do this or we're condemning. They wanted to keep it out of court and aggressively gave us authority to to push for settlements. And initially it was hard because, you know, the attorneys for the property appraisers just were getting outlandish appraisals and they still do that. But I mean, you know, they know that there will be compromise and, um, but the, on the state side, you know, the idea was always to get market value, true market value. And they, in Florida would use appraisers that represented oftentimes both sides of the fence so that it was, an expert that on a witness stand would be able to say, look, I do business for both sides. Um, Now, some departments of transportation, there's several districts. I mainly worked for district four out of Fort Lauderdale. So they all had their own management style. So some weren't as aggressive that way as, as we were, but um, then in 1994, though, the the biggest change was the legislature changed it so that the attorneys would benefit 33% basically off the first offer versus the settlement, which meant you better make that first offer higher so that it's not worth them litigating. So the push was every benefit of the doubt, you know, give to the property owner. And, and there was a lot of that with certain appraisers anyway, but so that was a big, big change. But otherwise, overall, you know, in the state of Florida, it's been in the districts I've worked with, it's it's been pretty much they try to get a legit appraisal. You know that the property owner appraiser is going to give even more benefit of the doubt to right. highest and best use and all that. And you just you're going to be in the middle. Have you dealt with any uh, with the state of Florida leasing property through third party owners or and has it sort of shifted to that? Because, I mean owning property is expensive, you know, uh, it is, even and, though, you, yeah. know, you know, and I asked that cause you know, in Washington DC, we had, um, I was managing properties that the federal government leased, um, and, but they leased it. The government didn't, you know, they didn't own those properties. Um, so I'm just, it's interesting to know, like in the state of Florida, that they were looking to actually purchase these properties. Um, is that still the mindset or shift or is it, could be, well, I can't say I've been representing them in the the last 10 years much or seven years. Yeah, I was up in Maryland, actually, not long ago. But um, generally for the right of way projects, what I was involved with was where we were buying property for a project and we needed to get it cleared for construction. So any leasing was short term. And we typically handled it ourselves. And it was a very limited basis because... Um, not only the liability, but um, there was just so many other things that came into it with them bringing more and more onto the property. And, you know, the problems kind of escalated. Yeah. So when you left uh, seven, eight years ago, what have you been doing since uh, with real estate investing? And Well, I got involved in investing. And um, initially I started out with flipping properties with a good friend of mine and um I knew at that time, though, just based on my experience in the 1980s, when I was an appraiser in the 80s, the uh, firm I worked with um, had me start with residential, and I quickly figured out I really like business decisions more, so I moved into commercial, (laughs) and um, I started 
while we were doing the flipping, she was the boots on the ground. I was the broker and able to do the contractual parts of it. And I had started reading books on syndicating and I had started learning how I was going to be able to participate in a commercial manner. Right. And um, so that's pretty much what I've been doing is building that. So from a syndication standpoint? And joint ventures and that kind of thing. But we were doing a lot of flipping, you know, during that time. And then I was going to launch my company as COVID started. Okay. <clears throat> and um, with all the talk of tenants not paying rent, I delayed and uh, man, it turned out to be the best years to, to have gotten in really. But a lot of that was because of the federal dollars you couldn't have anticipated, but yeah. Yeah. The timing, <clears throat> we were talking about this a little bit before where it's, um, you know, it's hard to time real estate markets and really we share the same philosophy and that it's always a good time to buy real estate. It's just always, you know, buying right. And as you mentioned, the business plan and the team beforehand, but, so what asset classes are you most interested in and, and why? Well, let me not let that little tidbit that we talked about before coming on go go without emphasizing because that is it's it's like a three-legged stool. <clears throat> it's critical that you have that location and the team and the plan. And and the team has to be willing and able and committed to not only start but finish. And you being in asset management, you know it better than anybody that that that's that's a vital part of the whole thing. And and while some companies don't have it under their own company, they do the third party thing, mm -hmm. <clears throat> which is what I do. Mm -hmm. um, it's vital to to have all those three components and and to buy right, you know, as we were saying. So so the um, the market is still good to be. Um, active out there. If you have all those three components, you have to buy it right. Um, I'm a very conservative underwriter. And um, so I'm looking, I, my my teams are looking at um, first and foremost, multifamily. Mm -hmm. The darling of the, the day <clears throat> is still multifamily because of the housing shortage. Um, I don't know if you realize I've been involved with the Florida Apartment Association. Uh, I've gotten quite involved statewide with um, I met with legislators a couple of weeks ago and we were um, introducing them, making sure they understood Senate Bill 102, which just got signed by DeSantis um, and um, several other opportunities for them to use some tools and help ensure cities and counties know what tools are available to increase the number of units, housing units. Um, so multifamily is first and foremost, I would say. Um, and I've been more looking for value add, but um, I have finally gotten over my PTSD from the 1980s um, and I am looking for um, potential to build. Right. Um, but uh, land entitlement and all that with my background, it, it'd be crazy if I didn't try to use some of that. Um, but um, also medical office, mobile home parks, um, self-storage, those are all um, looked at routinely. Um, a lot of offers been made, but haven't won any contracts because there's been some crazy money out there in Florida, to be quite frank. Um, the uh, other classes assisted living, you know, the, the silver tsunami is coming. And I, I do feel 
like um, in the right situation, I would get into some smaller as well as larger facilities, but I don't want to operate them. I need to know the operators because that just is, is just too much to try to try to get into. When you're underwriting properties in Florida, what, um, I mean, I, I'm thinking insurance, is property taxes as high as it is here? Because y'all don't have an income. Uh, do y'all have income uh, state tax? No, we don't. Yeah, but I, we there's do lots of similarities between Florida and Texas. So I assume property <laughs> taxes is, um, you know, a big revenue generator. So how, how insurance and these hurricanes and all, how's that impacting your underwriting and where you're seeing pricing out properties to buy? Well, they are. You just hit the two biggest factors that have um, some some challenges. Now, you can go ahead and get the per diem rates and whatnot on the taxes and go ahead and calculate what it will be mm-hmm. most likely after, you know, that's if if the um, appraisal office, the assessor's office updates the value right after you buy, and you should assume they will. Yeah. But even though they call it market value so that they don't get too many appeals, they pretty much put it, put it at 80 to 90% of market value. I've done a lot of tax appeals. Um, So you need to adjust that for your, your underwriting. And um, then the insurance is such a wild card. It's tripled for a lot of different property types. And um, that's, that's the, that's the crazy thing. You just need to be super conservative and get, get real estimates before you close and um, be sure that you're, you're figuring it could get worse. Yeah. That's the the struggle on the coast, coastal cities. Like I focus a lot in Houston and yeah, insurance rates going, you know, 40 to 60% higher in some cases more than what people underwrote. And so if you're not having the reserves or your property's not cash flowing, you know, it's just another uh, hurdle that a lot of these owners are having to, to go through and to explain to their investors of, you know, why the property isn't, it's just hard to, you know, know how high to do insurance when, you know, it seems like every other year there's a major storm hitting uh, the U S so. Well, there's some legislation that, um, and even a special session that occurred in Florida because it was getting so impossible to find insurance because so many of the companies have left the state Mm. and citizens is the name of the fail safe state run insurance and um they're getting overloaded and so um there was some legislation i think it was the bill was signed actually maybe yesterday on uh limiting um um some of the um lawsuit potential exposure there and uh it'll be interesting to see the insurance companies you know need to respond there's probably actually a, a business case for investors to form a company to to come in as well but sure well and you mentioned the bill that DeSantis just signed I, I Matt you know when you think of Florida there's a lot of people moving to Florida it's it's a it's a state that's um for many reasons you know a great place to live but uh with the sh- the shortage of a housing is that bill more focused on workforce housing uh you know what what is What's the opportunity there now that this bill has passed for real estate investors to take, you know, really take the lead and, and help with the the housing shortage? Well, it was termed live local. 
because the the emphasis was on affordable housing or is on affordable housing it does give um some funding to two of the the major programs um that are in the state and then there is also the tax credit approach that i think a lot of states have where um you can have a four or nine percent <clears throat> tax abatement if you will on the um properties and you do have to commit to a certain term of of keeping the certain number of units even and it depends on where you are everybody's got every government has a little different angle on what they want to require on um on the properties but it seems that more and more <clears throat> of the trend is to have a certain percentage of a market rate apartment building dedicated to the affordable housing and they're encouraging even to do some support services like uh, financial literacy training and things like that, like Habitat usually right. will do. So I think there's some some <clears throat> there's a push towards not just throwing money at it, but solving the problem, which is hopefully going to occur. Yeah. So I we call it opportunity zones here in Texas. So it's probably similar uh, there where investors are incentivized to build workforce housing and in such the government is providing tax relief. Is that, um, and... we have opportunity zones. Um, it's not that I, I haven't really heard of it being really geared towards affordable housing so much as, um, re, uh, um, Rebuilding, basically, refreshing communities. Um, it's really urban renewal um, more than than anything because there's a big slant towards businesses, and they even encourage you to buy businesses that are floundering within these zones. Wow. Well, I love the education aspect of it too. Um, you know, we I feel like schools that should be a you know financial literacy and management should be a class. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, but you know. It puts a lot on the parents, but if the parents don't have that background or knowledge of it either. It it just makes a chain effect moving forward of you know kids getting out of debt and building a foundation for their future. So, um, so now that you're focusing on real estate syndications, talk to us um, about where you think we are in today's market uh, from a financial standpoint of where the banks. I mean, we're hearing a lot of negativity with banks um you know having you know cash flow issues and you know silicon valley which is actually one of our lenders on a property uh we haven't had any issues uh yet but um they just were brought out by uh, i believe a bank in north carolina but sort of given your history in real estate where do you where do you sort of see us where we are today and does it reflect or match up to anything previously that you've you've experienced well, it does kind of give you some flashbacks to the 80s when the RTC and the FDIC were taking over banks. Um, I don't think that it's that far um, and wide. I think from what I'm hearing, it's it's certain banks that have gotten overly aggressive. And um, it sounds and seems like the bigger institutions are going to be able to um, back them up in many respects. I do think that the feds need to back off on the, the hikes, you know, 
Um, but at the same time, inflation is important to nip too. So I, I, I wasn't entirely against the quarter point they just raised, but I'm hoping there's a good pause because it does take time for all that to catch up. And obviously some banks weren't, I mean, you know, it's been decades for people to have even learned from that. And, and most of the people who went through that, my peers mm-hmm. are retiring in droves. So that, that experience isn't being relayed really. So um, I think that there's, people are much smarter. They've learned a lot. I, I, I don't think it's going to be a contagion. Um, I could be wrong, but I don't think it will be. And I do think it is going to present more opportunities from the people that got overly aggressive. As you know, we were talking, um, it was very hard to buy property for the last few years because there was crazy money, you know, being thrown at some of these, these opportunities. And, and those will now become opportunities, I think, for us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, especially because you think about two, three years ago when people were buying or investors were buying properties, whether it's private, you know, buying their own investment privately or syndicating to buy the pr- property. But rate caps weren't really the, you know, a lot of people were buying these variable or properties on variable loans and not more so thinking about rate caps, you know, right? Because rates were yeah. so low for so long. Um, so when you talk about opportunities, I mean, that is the opportunity, right? Is, is people are those, uh, the debt service on those properties is just really hurting a lot of, uh, properties. And so it is. either you refinance or you sell. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're refinancing and your, you know, your rate has doubled since you initially bought the property, you know, you, you, you potentially have an issue with your debt service coverage ratio, not hitting you know at least the 1.25 ratio so i think you're right i think there's a lot of opportunities for um that are going to be coming up because they're not going to be able to refinance um and if they do refinance it's going to be a higher um loan to value um or you're going to have to bring in more capital right so your 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 debt to loan ratio is going to be um a lot higher so you're going to and the interest rate and your, your interest rate, right? So right. I think that's what the banks, you know, I think moving forward, I agree with you that I, it, it's it's going to, I still think it's going to be a struggle, but I feel like the struggle is going to be with the buyer having to even more so have a strong business plan and then bring more capital, you know, to purchase a property. So where we were getting 80% loan to value, you know, I've, most of our properties now are 65% loan to value. And and that could even get a little higher where, you know, it could go down to like 60% loan to value. So it just means we have to raise more capital um, and that shifts the risk from the lenders as well. And then if they can start consolidating, you know, these lenders start consolidating, you know, that could be a challenge too, in a way where there's fewer lenders um, lending real estate type capital. So it'll be interesting to see, but I'm excited for the opportunity. So those investors out there listening, you know, this is the time to really be focused on broker relationships and finding off market opportunities to find those properties that may be suffering because of the loans. I agree. And actually we're meeting with bankers and talking with them as well too, because it could be they know of a property that's in trouble. But yeah. they don't want to take it back. 
Right. And if there's enough equity and a way to 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 revise the plans, you know, they might not have to take it back. So um, we're trying to be sure that we're aggressively talking to the bankers and and letting other investors know the same, because um, we don't want the industry to suffer. We want <clears throat> we want a good reputation in the syndication world. And I, I think it's really important that people appreciate that it's a team sport. And if you goofed, try to fix it, you know, try to reach out to the other professionals out there and um, get it fixed so that it's not going to be, um, you know, bruising the whole industry. Yeah. No, it's a great point with the lenders piece. That relationship is key. And there are stories of, you know, the loan going to another uh, syndicator, more experienced syndicator without them even having to bring in any additional equity or anything. It just, um, you know, so those having that track record and the experience definitely helps those get those type of opportunities a lot faster and, and easier, but no, it's a really great, great point. So, well, during your investing career, I mean, has there ever been a time where, you know, it's, was a huge learning experience where you, you look back and you're like, I wish I uh, knew that before I went through that experience, you know, um, for investors to to learn from you? Well, I, I can tell you the first thing that strikes me is I wish I'd known I could have been buying commercial property before. <laughs> that's that's the, the thing that uh, I, you know, really want to um, impress upon people is that they don't have to limit themselves to the stock market. And that there's other assets out there, many different types. They don't have to like multifamily. There's other things too. But the other thing is that, and connected to that, you can move your money to these other places and use the retirement dollars you have. You don't have to use your savings. There's usually a lot more resources through your retirement accounts. And uh, so the custodial accounts are... Um, a big thing that I, I wish I'd learned years before. Um, and it's passive investing. It's easy to do what you like and go be busy and have a family and, and have your money working for you. hundred percent. But you know, that these type of asset classes, it's fairly new, you know, the last 10 years or so. Can you talk to us a little about more about syndication and sort of where it's come in the last 10 years? Cause I, I do think that yeah. people uh, think, that they missed the boat years and years ago, but really you didn't like this. Things have changed, evolved. And, you know, from a timing, right. stand, yeah. from a timing standpoint, you know, anybody that's listening to this podcast, learn about real estate investing, you know, there's still part of that initial wave of investors that are getting into passive investing. And that's very true. I, I kind of um, uh, beat myself up for not being on the cutting edge because I, like to pride myself on knowing cutting edge stuff. But, um, and since I was buying property from, from people that were actually pooling money years ago, you know, I, I should have been able to figure it out then, but, but really, truly um, it was the jobs acts of 2012 and 17 that were um, <clears throat> put in place because of all the small mid-sized banks closing after the Great Recession, Trump, um, one of the things that he talked about or, or that's often cited was that um, 
the small and mid-sized people and businesses lost their resources for capital. And so the crowdfunding and, and um, syndication parts of that Jobs Act made it possible for people to pool money. And, and it was kind of a rebirth of syndicating. It was applied more to real estate than it had been before, as I understand it. It, of course, was always used in newspapers and sporting and syndicating isn't a new term. But in real estate, um, no longer did the business model mean it, it wasn't linear anymore where you get a source, you package a product and distribute, whether it's services or materials. Now, Harvard calls it um, the information age business model. They pride syndicating as the best business model, in fact, for um, the information age, because now it's a proliferation of resources and ways of doing things in all three steps. So um, that's what syndicating is, basically. It's taking the best of all that you can choose from and putting it together. And and so um, um, did that answer your question? <laughs> it does. And, I, and I, we were talking a little bit earlier too. I think as time goes on, people hopefully will advocate and push for even just the ability to invest in alternative investments in their 401ks. And, you know, just, I mean, I think the, we've said on the show before and, you know, the herd mentality of most investors is the stock market 401k invest in the Roth. And, you know, all those things I still do as well. You know, like I, along with everyone out there has lost 20, 25% of their, you know, stock market over the last year or so, but I still have investments there. And in a way, one of the things I learned back in 08, 09, you know, when I look back is I wish I bought more stocks during that time because everything in a way is on sale, right? But you got to have, you know, cash to do that. And at that point, I didn't have much cash. I was getting out of the Marine Corps and just starting my life. But, um, but you know, just investing during those those down markets, whether it's alternative investments like real estate and such. Um, but you did answer the question. One thing you mentioned is staying on cutting edge. And one of the things that, um, you know, went to a conference in January, but they were talking about like the metaverse and investing, you know, and, and so uh, in the airport, I bought a book and still for whatever reasons, I, I get the underlying principles of it, but investing in real estate in the metaverse, but I, you know, 10 years from now, I don't want to have a podcast like, oh, I should have, you know, looked more into that, but, <laughs> um, you know, it's, uh, you know, things evolve and change. And um, and if you're still, you know, on the fence about passive investing, you know, getting educated and and meeting people and learning, you know, learning what investing, because it, it can be a challenge for a lot of people to, you know, invest with a group of people, syndicators, but you're doing that in a way with stock market, these companies, like you're, exactly. you're, you're investing and you don't know who's going to be running that company or, you know, so it's just uh, getting educated and, and knowing the team who's who's executing the business plan. So, and I think that that's a critical part for us as syndicators is making sure that that we really get to know our investors and that they get the opportunity to really get to know us, because that's the best way to have the business venture over so many years have good results. Because you need to support each other, trust each other, know each other, you know. <clears throat> no like and trust is the the terms that most people use but um i think that that um one of my most common things that i end up talking to people about um when you go it, to these networking events or any event and they ask you what you do 
is um, making sure that they know that there are SEC guidelines that we have to operate under. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's controlled. It's not just a loosely done joint venture. It's basically a formal joint venture. It's papered with the private placement memorandum. And so that gives them the opportunity to read and know the operating agreement between the partners and what happens if there's something that goes wrong and whatnot. And I think that's a really important thing for them to know and to read in advance before there's an actual deal so that they can get familiar and not feel so, um, so um, you know, scared to, to take a move. And, it, and one other thing that's probably worth mentioning, too, because when I was an appraiser in the 80s and I would do this research, and this was the mid-1980s, right? <clears throat> and I'm looking at how little people paid for property, even in the 1970s. And I'm like, man, I wish I could have bought that, <laughs> right? I was in school at the time, right? Yeah. <clears throat> it's all relative. You just got to pull the trigger. Right. That's the thing. If you're not in the game, you can't you can't play. And um, there's a good. Well, that's a good metaphor. If if you're not in the game, you can't play. Yeah. Yeah. If you're sitting on the sidelines, you're not getting any better. So, um, well, I appreciate that. And um, one of the questions I always ask towards the end is, you know, what's your proudest moment in real estate investing? But before we go to that question, um, is there anything you want to cover that we haven't covered today? Um. No, I think I think the big message right now for people is that it's always a good time to buy real estate if you buy it right. And um, the syndication model allows people to control their risk better than many, many, many other ways of investing. And like you pointed out in the stock market, you don't know those people. And really for passive investors, the amount of time it takes or that they should be taking <clears throat> to invest, say, $50,000, of, of capital in the stock market, it's pretty much the same amount of time to invest in syndicating. You just have to know how to get that money ready to deploy. But um, um, yeah, so that's what I would say. Yeah. And to add to that, I think that's a really great point is you talk about risk and managing risk from a syndication point, in my view, you're sharing the risk with others. You're not the person bringing in $3 million to buy that asset, you know, 50, hundred thousand, right. 250. I've, I've had investors that do 500,000 or more, but it's still a smaller portion of what it would cost if you're doing it on your own. So from a risk standpoint and the ability to diversify in more real estate or other investments, you just have that uh, more of the ability through syndication. So um, all well said. Um, I would love to ask you my last question, and that's um, what's your proudest moment in real estate investing? And then if you can share how our listeners can be in touch uh, with you, we'll uh, close it up. Proudest moment. Um, hmm. I guess I still kind of go back to one of those Department of Transportation um, um, success stories. I um, was involved with uh, we had a two-story L-shaped condominium where we had to take off half of it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and we had um, like seven attorneys on the other side and seven owners with all their tenants in the building. And we were able to negotiate. Um, I was able to 
um, negotiate with them a settlement where we cut off the building and we were able to build that wing on the south side and um, getting all these adversarial parties to sign on agreements. Um, it was a, a, like a year, year and a half negotiation and plus our side of the attorney. It was just a, a huge closing and a huge feat. And uh, so that that's probably, probably my proudest. Love it. Well, how can people reach out to you? So um, if you can point it the right way. <laughs> My website's up on the um, background there, pivotalrealestateinvestments.com. And I have a uh, YouTube channel where I interview people like yourself and 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 others. And I'd like to do that, by the way. Um, and uh, um, that's called Pivot to Prosperity. It's on YouTube. And uh, Jenny.bowling at pivotalreilc.com. That's not so important. LinkedIn or any of these, you know, ways is, is just fine. Perfect. Well, Jenny, really appreciate you sharing your knowledge and uh, enjoyed getting to know you a little bit today. So uh, thank you. And I look forward to staying in touch. Likewise. Thank you. You take care. That's all for this episode. We hope you subscribe, share, and leave a review of the show. For more information about passively investing in multifamily apartments, check out Wayne's free ebook by going to creipartners.com forward slash ebook. Also, follow us on Facebook by searching CREI Partners. This was the untold stories of real estate investing.